Spring, 2001. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, brutal warlord Jean-Pierre Bemba and a group of heavily armed adolescent guerrilla soldiers trekked through the humid jungle. Their destination? Bemba's hilltop outpost. Among Bemba's ranks was none other than the globally renowned arms dealer Victor Boot, the Merchant of Death. Boot had just delivered a shipment of weapons and ammunition, the necessary arsenal to continue his fight against Congo's government. 34-year-old Boot reveled in his ability to deliver to these remote locations. To land cargo planes on sketchy rural jungle airstrips was just one more asset to set him apart in the arms trade. Boot also prided himself on making near-impossible sales, and it didn't matter what it was. Guns, ammo, food, anything. Once at camp, the pudgy and imposing Bemba sat with Boot, soaking in the spectacular view of Lake Albert. But Bemba immediately realized they had a problem. A big problem. One so stunning, they forgot the atrocities of war surrounding them. They were out of beer. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our first episode on the infamous Victor Boot, a Russian arms dealer who became one of the most elusive and prolific traffickers in history. This week, we'll explore Boot's rise in the arms trafficking game. Boot had an uncanny ability to capitalize on the fall of the Soviet Union, which fueled the brutal and ruthless conflicts across Africa. Next week, we'll follow Boot's role in the Middle East, as America's war on terror created a new market to sell weapons. And we'll explore some of the conspiracies that have followed the man known as the Merchant of Death. Coming up, we'll explore the rise of Victor Boot. By the end of the 1990s, Victor Boot had become a cloud, casting his shadow across the entire global arms market. While his patterns were temperamental, his visibility subject to perception, and his reign often sporadically concentrated, Boot was a geopolitics genius. He was constantly adapting not just to weather each storm, but to thrive in the downpours. First and foremost, Boot was a capitalist. He didn't care what he was selling, who he was selling to, where it was going, or what sanctions might label it illegal. If there was a war to be waged, Victor Boot was there to supply it. He was greedy and opportunistic, meaning a good businessman. Brutal warlords, American politicians, Interpol investigators, UN suppliers, reporters, or even a Hollywood screenwriter, Boot could get them all what they wanted. And he sold to everyone. 
Boots reportedly armed nearly all of Western Africa, most of the Middle East, the United States, and even some South American countries. And because no one was off-limits, it's hard to know exactly how many warlords or governments he was in bed with, or how many millions of dollars he plunged into his bank accounts. He took every precaution to limit the publication of the specifics and details of his trade. It became nothing more than whispers and shadows. Even today, those in the trade believe there are still hundreds of deals yet to be exposed. But rumors make the best reputations. It only added to the allure of a man with an interest in maintaining his clout. A man who could make it happen, whatever it was. And on a warm April 2001 evening, deep within the Congolese jungle, Boot was willing to prove it. Warlord Jean-Pierre Bemba had just discovered a major problem. He was out of beer. This problem wouldn't even cross the mind of most revolutionary leaders, especially those forced to live rather frugally while trekking through the wild African jungle. However, Bemba wasn't exactly a minimalist. He'd regularly insist that his deprived militia carry his hardtop tents, cots, chemical toilets, and generators on their often brutal and lengthy marches. Their leader wasn't willing to go without any of the finer things. Knowing the warlord's taste for comfort, it seemed absurd to think that his militia forgot something so simple as beer, especially after making such an important, lucrative arms deal. It was enough to drive Bemba into a rampage. For Victor Boot, though, it was an opportunity to forever assert himself into the warlord's good graces. After all, this was the height of the Congo conflict, a war that had been off and on since the mid-90s, claiming roughly 5.4 million lives. Someone had to continue fueling the war machine. So if finding a few cases of beer resulted in future business, as well as adding to his own reputation, then the arms dealer had no choice but to deliver. The only question left was, where do you find beer in the middle of a jungle? Marching through the Congolese rainforest was its own form of hell. The mosquito-laden stretches of thick brush and biting flies was insufferable. Boot and Bemba wanted to avoid them at all costs which is why Boot decided to use two Soviet-built helicopters to bypass the jungle. Boot's crew, along with 20 armed guerrillas, set out for the ultimate beer run. They choppered east across Lake Albert and into Uganda. Once over the lake, they landed just outside a quaint little town. The small militia proceeded to occupy the area, rounding up the townspeople in the market square and ordering them to fetch all available beer. An hour later, Boot and his men loaded the helicopters with cases of beer, paying the townspeople very little, and made their way back to Bemba. The men toasted their success, sipping on suds and basking in their lakeside view. And for the 34-year-old Boot, he knew he had solidified his relationship with yet another happy customer. That night, after the men had their fill, Boot and his crew slept near the choppers. They kept each primed and ready for an emergency takeoff should they need one. Allegedly, this was customary for Boot. Even when he was invited to stay in a warlord's villas, he'd pitch a tent in the brush near his escape craft instead. He was cautious to keep himself one step ahead 
both of his enemies and of his friends. The great irony, of course, was that for all his success selling arms to men like Jean-Pierre Bemba, Victor Boot knew nothing about weapons themselves. In fact, Boot's longtime partner, the Bulgarian arms dealer Peter Mirchev, was shocked that Boot was completely ignorant of the industry when they first met in 1995. According to Mirchev, Boot mistaked the calibers, he mistaked the systems, he mistaked the weapons. But Boot wasn't going to let a little thing like arms illiteracy stop him from being successful. He was an opportunist, and he'd been that ever since he was a child growing up in the Soviet Union. The majority of Boot's upbringing is a mystery. Over the years, very little has come to light about his early life. According to his multiple passports, Boot was born in 1967 in Dushanbe, Tajikistan, a small country today that borders Afghanistan. It was much closer to the Middle East than to Moscow. The mysteries surrounding Boot extend beyond him too. There's always been some speculation that Boot's mother was a high-ranking KGB operative. Boot has denied this claim though, insisting that both of his parents held mundane administrative jobs. Boot grew up desperately wanting to travel, to see the world. But in the Soviet Union, there was an understanding that the only way to do this was either through sports or the military. According to the New Yorker's Nicholas Schmidl, Boot tried both. As an adolescent, Boot toured the USSR playing volleyball. Then, when he turned 18, he enlisted in the Soviet Army, where he was stationed in the Ukraine for two years. After his deployment ended, 20-year-old Boot moved onto the Military Institute of Foreign Languages in Moscow, a breeding ground for Russian intelligence officers. After graduating from the academy in the late 1980s, Boot found himself in Mozambique in southern Africa, at least according to him. He claims that he served as a simple military advisor. However, many have speculated that after graduation, he was actually in Angola working as a KGB operative. Boot has fervently denied these accusations, insisting that he had never worked for the KGB. He even went so far to state that his mother cried when the papers connected him to the notoriously secret organization. These allegations were simply spoiling his self-made image, and he was desperate to refute them. So, later in life, Boot obtained a letter from the Federal Security Service, formerly the KGB, to corroborate his lack of involvement with the agency. For Victor Boot, reputation was everything. Regardless of whether or not he was actually KGB, we know for sure that he was in Southern Africa in the late 1980s. Because this time, either serving in or traveling through Mozambique, is when he first met Ala Protasova. At the time, Protasova was traveling the region with her husband. But upon meeting Boot, she fell head over heels in love. Not long after their meeting, Protasova filed for divorce. By 1991, Boot and Protasova were married. The whirlwind romance led to a Moscow marriage, and just in time for the collapse of the Soviet Union. Before the ink even dried on the marriage certificate, the newlyweds faced a stark new world. Chaos exploded. Control of the dismantled superpower went to anyone desperate enough to seize it. 
society divided into those willing to make something of themselves and those willing to disappear back into the abyss. But for 24-year-old Victor Boot, now a husband, the fall of the once great superpower wasn't a time for mourning. It was an opportunity to make some money by any means necessary. Coming up, Victor Boot uses the collapse of the Soviet Union to break into arms dealing. Before we get back to the show, I have a quick podcast recommendation I think you'll really enjoy. It's an all-new Spotify original from Parcast, and it's called Incredible Feats. Every weekday, comedian Dan Cummins, who you might recognize from the hit podcast Time Suck, explores a true account of physical strength, mental focus, or bizarre behavior. He goes behind the scenes into the achievements of world record holders like Ashrita Furman, who's broken records on every continent, and athletes like Wim Hof, whose training methods allow him to withstand extreme temperatures for hours at a time, and even people like Juliana Kopka, who was forced to survive alone in a rainforest when she was just 17 years old. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. New episodes air Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed, creating chaos as lives, careers, and entire countries were thrust into uncertainty. For many, it was a truly devastating and scary moment. Millions wondered what life would look like. For 24-year-old Victor Boot, though, he saw the geopolitical shakeup as an opportunity, one befitting of his military background. See, the dismantling of the Soviet military led to a surplus of ammunition, weapons, and military equipment that was no longer in use. The Soviet arsenal was littered all across Eastern Europe. All the leftovers from the arms race with the United States were now without a home and thus entirely for sale. Boots saw the potential in the stockpiled weapons. Plus, Eastern European weapons manufacturers who made the Soviet weapons were suddenly left with arms to sell. Instead of collecting dust in warehouses, Boot knew he could flip them and rake in hundreds of millions of dollars. It wouldn't take much convincing to acquire them for himself. All he really needed was a way to transport them. And as if the pot couldn't get any sweeter, there were also airport tarmacs with unused aircrafts. No one really wanted them because no one could afford them. Between the cost of parts, fuel, and upkeep, the new ownership was practically giving the useless planes away. As a young and eager entrepreneur, Boots knew that if he could acquire the cargo planes, he could find the capital to fix, fuel, and fly them. Someone would pay him to take something somewhere. He just had to find out who. Then in 1992, Boot seized his opportunity. He acquired his first three Antonov cargo planes for the remarkable bargain price of $120,000 total. The details on how the 25-year-old just found his startup capital remain fuzzy to this day. Boot claimed that he had no problems raising the funds for the initial investments. Yet, the whispers surrounding Boot's early years suggest a different story, one in which the GRU, or Russian military intelligence, 
allegedly gifted Boots the planes in exchange for a percent of his new business. The fleet of cargo aircrafts was far more than the GRU could hope to use in their newly founded Russia. Their solution, then, was to unload the aircrafts for whatever they could get. After all, money was far more appealing than the surplus of grounded planes. Though this story hasn't been confirmed, it suggests that Boot and his enterprise may have always been supported by covert powers like the GRU. Many within law enforcement have looked at the GRU as a Kurusha for Boot. In Russian, Kurusha means roof. But in the Russian underworld, it's a very specific protective entity. Someone or something that provides legal protection and extrajudicial advantages. The GRU was coping with their ammunition surplus, attempting to turn a Soviet stockpile into cash. Whether they were cognizant of it or not, they were now in the business of making arms deals. But the GRU also wanted to legally unload weapons in a way that wouldn't necessarily connect a newly founded Russia with a potentially unwanted ally. So, a middleman seemed like an ideal solution. We don't know the specifics of these first flights, where Boot went, or the dates they happened remain a mystery. But what we do know is that as the USSR was collapsing, he was making cargo runs, and it's implied that they were in service for the GRU. Years later, Boot's associates and Western intelligence officials confirmed that Boot transported sanctioned arms to approved African countries on his first few flights. Much of the rumors surrounding these earlier flights makes sense. The new Russian government maintained a presence in select USSR embassies and used them to make arms deals. For example, in Angola in 1991, GRU agents are said to have occupied outposts and used the stations as legal entry points for weapons. These weapons were then transported across the continent to various governments and militia groups. According to an anonymous British intelligence agent in Boot's biography, Merchant of Death, Boot was stepping into existing relationships. He was the new face of the old pipeline. Each Soviet connection Boot made on these early runs was an opportunity for the future. They held infinite possibilities to expand his network. He met with military officials, intelligence officers, and airport personnel anyone and everyone that would make his shipments fly easier and under the radar was an important cog in the boot machine. He found powerful people in powerful places, and no matter who they were or what they wanted, if they could fuel his business, Boot wasn't going to say no. It's no surprise then that at the beginning of his career, Boot fulfilled several of the worst-paying defense contracts, as they're now known, those coming from the UN. Weapons, of course, paid more, but flying legitimate UN cargo bolstered his reputation. He could take any contract anywhere in the world. In 1992, Boots planes delivered supplies for the World Food Program into Somalia. And during the Rwandan crisis, Boots says he flew in over 2,500 French troops in addition to supplies for refugees. And the more cargo shipments he delivered, the stronger the demand grew. If he was going to keep up, he'd need more planes. Sometime in 1992, Boot found four cargo planes that were destined to be scrapped for parts. In fact, they were on record as having been junked. 
planes past their prime and completely unfit for air travel. Because they were essentially inoperable, it meant that they were taken off the international registry list. This gave the added effect of making the planes difficult to track and their origins even more difficult to identify. They were perfect. And Boot bought all four at around $20,000 a piece. Then, Boot assembled a team of specialists to retrofit the planes with the absolute minimum of flight essential parts. The sooner they were in the air with as much cargo as possible, the sooner he could make money. The move paid off. In a single week of flights, each plane made $30,000 worth of deliveries to Angola. Despite the rapid success, Boot yearned for more. He knew if he expanded outside of Russia, he could find new opportunities and more money. So he decided to move. Sometime in 1993, Boot and his wife Ala relocated to the United Arab Emirates, specifically to the reputedly lawless city of Sharjah, less than 20 miles from Dubai. The coastal city's close proximity to African conflicts made it an ideal place to establish an air freight company. And in no time at all, Boot and his cargo planes were back, making dangerous deliveries to remote jungle airstrips located in war zones. Over the next two years, business boomed. So much that he and Allah were able to move into a villa overlooking the Persian Gulf. In 1995, 28-year-old Boot began working with Peter Mirchev, a Bulgarian arms dealer. When Mirchev first met Boot, he was surprised at how little Boot actually understood about weapons and ammunition. For all the success that Boot had over the last three years, he could barely tell the difference between a Mosin Nagant or a Kalashnikov. Thankfully, Mirchev gave him a crash course in Weapons 101, and Boot was a fast learner. Soon, the two quickly forged a partnership. Mirchev provided the weapons, and Boot used his cargo planes to transport them. Boot was able to quickly apply his new knowledge and maneuver through the so-called gray areas of arms dealing. The gray areas referred to both morality and the market. The best way to succeed in the gray area was by maintaining some ignorance surrounding specific shipments. Boot began doing this perfectly. Perhaps he knew what he was trafficking, but not where it was going. Perhaps it was the other way around. More than ever, ignorance was bliss. Boot extended this type of deniability to his flight crews. Most pilots consider it their duty and obligation to know what's in their cargo. Looking the other way is not just negligent, but sacrilegious. For Boot's pilots, though, Neglect to know was a part of the job description. Whether this was Boot's way of protecting his crew or himself, one thing is certain, it definitely kept things in the moral gray. Out of sight, out of mind. As for the gray market, weapon sales are almost exclusively in this realm. This is because arms dealing isn't intrinsically illegal. In fact, there are few international laws that regulate it, and even fewer that are actually enforceable across borders. The best way to explain it is like this. When shopping for a designer handbag, it isn't necessarily illegal for someone to buy a brand new one, still in the packaging, from the back of a trunk, at a discounted rate. However, 
it's obviously not as legitimate as purchasing the same purse full price in a department store. If a person bought the bag from a trunk, they made a gray market purchase. They are protected by their ignorance of the bag's origins and authenticity. The concept, too, can be applied to arms deals. Victor Boot quickly learned that when it came to weapons, how and where they were bought mattered, and how to make an illegitimate sale look legitimate. The distinction between the two often comes down to the ability to produce an end-user certificate, or EUC. An EUC verifies that the deal is not in violation of any UN sanctions, thus a legitimate deal. Rebel groups, militias, and destabilized governments are often placed under restrictions when it comes to being allowed to buy weapons, a move intended to ease bloody conflicts. Seeing yet another opportunity, by the mid-1990s, Victor Boot became an expert in forging EUCs. While forged EUCs were a great way to bypass the UN, they were by no means the only way. It was important to Boot to make sure all of his bases were covered. So, another one of his tricks was the misdirect. Boot instructed his pilots to block out or repaint aircraft call signs. This was done so that the planes couldn't be properly identified during landings or takeoffs. All of his pilots had cans of spray paint on hand, just in case. The misdirect extended to the cargo itself. Boot may have labeled crates of weapons as perishable fruits to dissuade legitimate officials from prying them open. This was especially effective in the more hot and humid climates. Few were determined enough to open a putrid crate of spoiled produce in the heat. Even more tricks up his sleeve likely included bribing military officials to look the other way at airstrips, paying off warehouse clerks to fudge inventory sheets, having pilots land at an airport with one registration number and take off with another, and switching entire crews at refueling stops. But of all the possible tactics, one of the most creative would have been having his flights double back. With all of the airlines he was creating, which he registered under shell companies, the double-back method could be used as a way to make those airlines appear legitimate. The double-back worked like this. Hypothetically speaking, let's say Victor Boot had a deal to sell hundreds of automatic weapons to the brutal Liberian dictator Charles Taylor. Obviously, Boot couldn't appear to be selling those weapons to someone violating human rights, like Taylor. So, officially, the flight manifest said that the plane was going from Portugal to Bolivia. However, once the plane was just over Liberia, it would double back and land for an unscheduled stop, perhaps to refuel. The weapons would be unloaded and the plane would be back up in the air. Since the departure and landing airports were all that Boot needed to report, this not-so-little detour officially never happened. On paper, the flight was completely legitimate. Trips to Liberia were common throughout the mid to late 1990s. In fact, cargo planes carrying massive amounts of weapons flew in and out of Africa constantly. What few people realized, though, was that Charles Taylor was just the tip of the iceberg. Throughout the 1990s, there was a common denominator when it came to the various wars destroying Africa. Victor Boot. And by the start of the new millennium, everyone knew his name. Coming up, 
Victor Boot arms notorious African dictators while trying to protect his own reputation. Now, back to the story. Throughout the 1990s, Russian arms dealer Victor Boot capitalized on the fall of the Soviet Union to create a global arms empire. With the help of his friend and partner, Peter Mirchev, he was able to skirt international laws and supply weapons to whomever needed them. Boot was particularly interested in one place that had known turmoil for decades, Africa. And one of his favorite alleged clients was Liberian dictator Charles Taylor. Before Charles Taylor officially became president of Liberia in 1997, he was the leader of a rebel group during the Liberian Civil War. The bloody six-year conflict between 1990 and 1996 resulted in over 150,000 deaths and turned half the population into refugees. Taylor used weapons smuggled into the country as his tools for bloody chaos, and once he was in power, he was ready to cash out on his newfound status. In the late 1990s, he allegedly diverted over $100 million of the country's treasury to fund his homes, cars, and of course, weapons. But the hands holding these guns weren't adult revolutionaries. None of them were fanatical ideologues fighting to overthrow a tyrannical leader. Instead, most of his fighting forces were children. During the war years, Taylor reportedly pumped his child soldiers with cocaine and amphetamines. This gave them fearless sensibility. They'd willingly fight and die for Taylor. And the weapons his child soldiers used, allegedly, came from Victor Boot. Taylor, allegedly, was a favorite customer of Boot's. Their relationship gave way to new deals in the surrounding area. Taylor had dictatorial friends who also coincidentally needed weapons and munitions. One such place, though, proved to be trickier than anticipated, Sierra Leone. For reasons that are unclear, dealing in Sierra Leone would have implicated Boot directly. Perhaps he was unable to forge the end-user certificate, or perhaps he wasn't able to double back without drawing suspicion. Either way, getting weapons into the country was a challenge. But by January of 1999, not only had 32-year-old Boot found the answer, he also implemented a long-term solution. He started chartering his airplanes. By leasing out his planes, Boot wasn't responsible for knowing where they were flying or what they were carrying. He created the ultimate blanket of deniability. In just two months, the revolutionary United Front the rebel group Boots was allegedly arming in Sierra Leone received up to 67 tons of weapons, all of them originating from Ukraine. Much like in Liberia, many of the soldiers using these weapons were children. But in a much more sadistic move, some of these children had RUF carved into their chest. It was a brand to ensure that no kid could escape the clutches of the militia. Boot fed off of these African conflicts. He was pulling business with dictators and rebel leaders across the continent. And for nearly a decade, he managed to keep his deals, like the ones in Liberia and Sierra Leone, a total secret. But the more business he did, the more attention he flagged. Soon, Boot's name began to surface throughout the international community. 
In just a few years, the dawn of the new millennium brought a much fuller, more damning picture of his activity to light. In the 1990s, an Angolan rebel militia called UNITA began to turn their automatic weapons on civilians. Naturally, this caught the attention of the UN. Soon, a delegation was sent to Angola to investigate the atrocities. The investigators discovered that since 1998, Peter Mirchev, Boot's partner, had been trafficking into Angola. Everything from AK-47s to rocket-propelled grenades. Each shipment's end-user certificate, its receipt of legality, had been forged. And in every case but one, Boot's cargo planes were used to make the drop. When pressed by reporters, Boot admitted that in 1994 he transported whiskey, flour, potatoes, cooking oil, and other supplies to the UNITA territory. And he admitted to trafficking arms into nearby UNITA-friendly countries. However, he denied ever sending those weapons to the UNITA or to UNITA-controlled territories. Not that his word mattered. When it was eventually released, the UN report sparked a lot of interest, especially from the CIA. Whitney Schneiderman, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, went so far as to label Boot as the personification of evil, directly undermining our efforts to bring peace. Unfortunately, though, the UN is not an internationally enforceable entity, meaning they can't prosecute all illegal or nefarious activity. Instead, their objective was to name and shame shadow businesses, bringing their deeds to light. This was exactly the tactic they used against Boot. And it worked. The more Boot was named and shamed, the more he took it upon himself to defend his businesses and deny these accusations publicly. After all, his image was everything. It's what helped to build his career. In Boot's mind, he wasn't committing crimes. He was merely filling a hole in the marketplace. He didn't care about who he sold weapons to because if he didn't make the sale, somebody else would. For instance, in 1998, Boot and Mirchev trafficked weapons from Bulgaria to Rwanda for the Tutsi-led government. Once there, weapons were funneled to the Tutsi militia fighting the Congo Wars. Between 1991 and 1998, the U.S. also delivered over $227 million in weapons to seven countries involved in the Congo Wars, in addition to another $125 million in aid supplies. Boot saw his own work as the same thing. They were both selling weapons to militias. From his perspective, he was merely a capitalist, the new John D. Rockefeller or Andrew Carnegie. The only difference between Boot and these American titans was that he dealt in weapons, not oil or steel. But if that wasn't enough, Boot also made it clear that he didn't just deal in weapons. His cargo planes flew humanitarian aid to these same war-torn countries. Take the Congo conflict, for example. Yes, he did deliver weapons to multiple forces in the region, but he also delivered supplies from the World Food Programme to refugees. And let's not forget, he also transported aid for Rwandan refugees and Belgian peacekeepers into Somalia. Just because he was profiting off both sides doesn't mean he was a bad person. 
It just meant he would take every opportunity, ethics aside. His ability to shake off the naysayers and continue crisscrossing the globe only added to Boot's growing legend. He had skirted international laws for nearly a decade. He knew that he could keep doing it, even with a spotlight on his back. So the 2000s started off on the wrong foot. Why dwell on it? There was always going to be bloodshed somewhere in the world, and once there was, the chance to make money off of it wasn't far behind. Boot could accept that. On September 11, 2001, 19 terrorists from Al-Qaeda launched a series of coordinated attacks against the United States. Nearly 3,000 Americans lost their lives at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and in the four airplanes that were used to commit the heinous act. The attacks would trigger one of the biggest conflicts of the new millennium. From his television screen, 34-year-old Victor Boot watched as the United States prepared for the invasion of Afghanistan. He wasn't thinking about the impending chaos or bloodshed. All he could think to himself was that a major opportunity had fallen into his lap. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we follow Victor Boot's arms deals through the Middle East and as he makes his attempts to dodge the authorities. For more information on Victor Boot, amongst the many sources we used, we found Merchant of Death by Douglas Farah and Stephen Braun and Arms and the Man, a New York Times article by Peter Landisman, to be extremely helpful in our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Malia Graska, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.